0: Pray with me. Jesus, thank you so much that's true, that we are no longer slaves, that you have delivered us, you have freed us, and that we can walk in that freedom, we can live in that freedom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, worship team, that was awesome. Hey, so, this is cool. We're coming at you live from the Performing Arts Center, we're getting our practice in, before next week, when we have uh, actual humans here, so I get to preach to uh, an empty room today, except for my beautiful wife who's sitting in the front row, which is awesome. Uh, look at this. And I've missed you. I don't care what you think, I just had a moment. Leave me alone. All right, so uh, kind of doing a little mini two part series here. Uh, So three months ago, my wife and I, uh, my wife gave birth to a beautiful baby girl. I didn't, I didn't give birth. Um, Miriam Joy, Miriam Joy. And uh, we call her MJ, MJ. So uh, we have high hopes for her, right? We're hoping she either becomes one of the greatest basketball players of all time, one of the greatest entertainers of all time, or Spider-Man's girlfriend, really. Any of the famous MJs we're excited about, she is uh, a beautiful little girl. Um, so, man, it's been three months, though. It's been three months since uh, my wife gave birth. And um, what a crazy experience uh, the, the birth experience is, right? On one hand, it's, it's just an amazing thing. Um, I'm always struck by like how in the world somebody can like be an atheist and experience uh, the the birth of a, of a child like a tiny human coming into this world it's just so crazy and then on the other hand it's uh, it's terrifying it's terrifying um, because there's so many things that go wrong uh, I hear it hurts I don't know I can't confirm but I hear it hurts and uh, it can be an hours long or tens of hours long experience of just all leading up to one. Moment, moment of birth. Now uh, I have some experience. Now in this, I used to think that like that moment, the moment the baby you know came out, that would be like the sigh of relief moment. Uh, but I was wrong. That's not the moment. Um, when the doctor or the midwife takes that baby into their hands, uh, everybody in the room is waiting with bated breath. Okay, there's the milliseconds stretch out as this child uh, is held and everybody's waiting for this baby cry. It's, it's strange. It's, it's one of the only times it's socially acceptable to be hoping to hear someone else cry, right? That's it. Normally that's not okay, but in the delivery room, you are hoping to hear this cry. And that, I think, is a profound thing. I think that's a profound thing to say you know, that leaving the warm safety of the womb, every human enters this world through tears. The first thing a human does with lungs they've never used is cry. I think there's maybe more meaning there than we realize, right? So, uh, and the first cry is just the beginning, right? Life never stops giving us reasons to cry from the hunger of the infant to the skinny knee of the toddler, tears. From elementary school cruelty to the first heartbreak, tears. From overwhelmed to exhausted, tears. From the betrayal of trust to the loss of a loved one, tears. Crying is inherently human. The human experience is marked by tears either on the inside or the outside. I know if you're some like tough guy, you're like, I haven't cried in like 10 years. Okay, cool. Maybe your tears stay on the inside and they crystallize and turn into something more explosive. I don't know, right? But the point is, you will never be without disappointment. You will never be without pain. You will never be without loss in your life, never. And Jesus confirms this in John 16, verse 33. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on this earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. It's a a verse of hope built into that verse, man. It's kind of a scary statement. Jesus said, you will have trials and sorrows. You will. It's not if it's not good possibility. It's you are going to. So if your strategy in your life has been to avoid trials and sorrows and pain and discomfort, you need a new strategy because Jesus has told you no matter how good you are, you're not going to be able to pull that off. So rather than be surprised by the sorrow in our life, maybe we should spend more of our time, more of our energy Thinking about how we'll respond when they hit because they are going to hit. So that's the question I want to talk about today. How will you handle your tears? How will you respond to your sorrow? How will you think about the pain in your life? Now, we usually go one of two ways with that. One of two, I'm going to oversimplify things here. One is the religious way, okay? I'm going to call it the religious way. Uh, religious people tend to deny their feelings, okay? Religious people tend to gloss over their feelings of hurt and torment, right? That's that's what religious people, they're a little scared of feelings, right? So, so religious people tend to stuff what they're feeling. I think they're not like allowed to have feelings. And then the, so the, that's one way. And then the other way is kind of the opposite. It's the way our culture goes. Our culture tends to make feelings king, right? Our culture tends to say that exploring feelings, discovering feelings is almost like an end in and of itself, which is a really weird thing. Um, and, and really the reason for that is our culture wants to make how you feel who you are, forging feelings into identity, Weird concept, but they want to forge your feelings into an identity. So religion denies feelings, culture bows to feelings. And I want to say that, that like what the Bible teaches and what God actually wants is neither one of those things. God does not want you to deny your feelings or bow to them. Both of those lead to destructive places. So here's my motivation this morning. If you could think the right way about the things that go wrong in your life, how different would your life be? If you could feel the right way about the things that go wrong in your life, how different would your life be? And maybe you don't like my wording, so let me reword it. How many of the problems in your life are created by you responding to pain and disappointment the wrong way? Think about it for a minute, because once I started thinking about it, I'm like, ooh, more than I want to, more than I wanted to admit before I started thinking about it. So I want to propose rather than denying our feelings, rather than bowing to our feelings, a third and better way. If to cry is inherently human, to lament is inherently Christian. To lament. If we want to process our pain and disappointment the right way, we need to learn to lament. We need to learn to lament. So the book of Psalms is this massive, spectacular book in the middle of your Bible, right? And I don't know about you, when people talk about the book of Psalms, I'm always thinking like, um, I always think about praise and lifting God up and stuff like that. But man, I didn't realize until this week that the most common type of psalm is actually a lament, like by a lot. There are more laments than any other type of psalm. Even that says something about the human experience, doesn't it? So what is a lament? If you don't, don't use the dictionary here because the dictionary is just going to talk about being sad, and that's not it. We're going to look at more of a, a Christian Bible-based definition of what a lament is. What's the difference between just crying and lamenting? What's the difference between just being sad and lamenting? So a lament actually adds something both above and below uh, the, the tears, okay? So, so underneath crying in a lament... Um, we actually ask a deeper question as to why there's crying at all, right? Where does crying even come from? The Bible answers this question by telling us that the cause of death and pain and tragedies is the presence of sin in this world. Underneath our tears, the reason we cry is the spiritual reality of a created order that is broken, flawed. A biblical lament, if you really want to get there, expresses sorrow for my problem, while acknowledging the bigger and ultimate problem of sin in the world. You're putting your pain in the context of all pain. I think that's an important exercise for us to practice. So that's below our crying. And then, and then lament adds above it, lament adds something more than just tears. It provides hope, which is a weird and maybe kind of ironic thing. if you are talking about lament, but a biblical lament requires faith. A Christian lament knows both the cause of sorrow and understands the solution, and we long for deliverance. Lament wrestles with the tension that God is good, but bad things still happen. Struggles with the promise that one day there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, but that day has not yet come. That's what uh, lament tries to do. So how, uh, let's, let's get practical. How, how do we lament? I want to give you uh, examples, I actually really appreciate uh, the Psalms because it, it does just kind of take you through almost like a museum of some of the greatest laments uh, in uh, human existence. And I want to just look at a short one as an example today. We're going to look at Psalm 13. We're just going to do the whole chapter because it's only six verses long. So this is uh, David writing and David says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, oh my God. Restore the sparkle of my eye or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying we defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. That's a wild ride, isn't it? That's six verses. He goes from one place to a very different place. So here's what I'm going to do. i want to look at that. i want to pull and kind of recognize inside of here four elements of lament, and you need all of them, okay? You need to have every element of, of the lament for it to actually be a, a, a lament. So four pieces making up the whole. Uh, first one, first element of lament. It's, it seems obvious, but it needs said, okay? The first element of a lament is you turn to God. You turn to God. You can cry without God, but you cannot lament without God. And maybe that's obvious, but it's not instinctual. That's why I want to say it. It might be obvious, but it's not instinctual. I think for a lot of us, our knee-jerk reaction to pain is to recoil from God, to turn away. And maybe that's not you. Maybe you're more of a person who gets so caught up in, like, the cloud of your pain that God, like, maybe isn't even on your radar, but to lament, you actually have to turn your face towards God. I would even say you have to mentally and emotionally enter the throne room of heaven. Do you do that when you pray? Do you try to actually imagine like pushing open these giant doors that go up in the sky and actually entering into this glorious throne room of the creator? You need to do that to lament. Now, maybe your hesitancy when it comes to like the pain in your life is you're afraid of what, what you're bringing into that throne room. It feels maybe inappropriate or irreverent to bring your emotional mess into God's throne room. Maybe that's where you're at. Like, Lord, let me, let me, get, let me put myself together. Let me wipe my face off before uh, I enter into your throne room. I just want to say I get that. I think that's usually my, my uh, instinct to say, hold on, God, let me get this together. But let me, let me think of a way to present this to you that's better than the raw way I feel it right now. Um, but look at what Ephesians, or, uh, Hebrews 4.16 says. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. When we need it most. So you don't just go to the throne room when you've put yourself together. You don't present yourself to God as if he needs to like have you put yourself together. No, the throne room is, is where you go when you need it most. When the tears are falling, when the snot is flowing, the mascara is running, that is exactly how you're supposed to go into the throne room. So the first element of a lament is you don't just cry, you cry in God's presence. You've got to mentally and emotionally go to the presence of God, which leads to the second element of lament. Present your heart to God, unfiltered, unfiltered. A huge part of lament is expressing your feelings unfiltered, not watered down, not edited for TV, not censored for a younger audience, pure 200 proof heart. The goal of a lament is to present your heart as it is to your God. I think sometimes that takes work. We lie to ourselves about how we feel. It's easy to lie to God about it. And and part of the reason it's even harder is because I think um, a proper lament contains theologically incorrect feelings. A proper lament contains theologically incorrect feelings. Stuff that your brain might know is wrong, but your heart feels it anyways. Amen. I'll say it for me since the room's kind of empty. Um, Stuff your brain knows is wrong, but your heart feels anyways. And included in that, we'll be asking, I would say, theologically incorrect questions, right? It's not what I know, it's what I feel. Look at how David started that psalm. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? We know God hasn't forgotten him, but he's asking the question. How long will you look the other way? God's not looking the other way, but that's how he feels. How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? David asks, how long? Four times in two verses. Now, (laughs) I think those verses could be our theme verses for 2020, right? How long? How long? How long, Lord? Now, these are not questions that David is thinking. These are questions David is feeling. And these are questions you're like not supposed to ask, right? You're not supposed to ask God, God, what are you doing? right? God's all-powerful. God's all-knowing. He knows what He's doing. That's disrespectful. But if you're not praying prayers like that, then you're not praying how you feel. You're dressing it up before you get to God. The whole point of this element of the lament is to get out what's inside of you, to get out what's inside of you. Rather than deny it, see, that if you're you're cleaning up your feelings before you go to God, you're making the mistake of the religious person. You're denying your feelings. You're feeling it. You're just thinking, ah, that's kind of disrespectful, so I won't say it. You're going to have to fight to be brutally honest with God about how you feel. Whatever weird inhibitions you have, you need to get over them and present your heart as it is to your God. I'm going to say something, maybe even be a little controversial. I think for some of you, if you're not cussing, then you're not doing it right. Because for some of you, you need, you, this is a part of the unfiltered part of your heart, Right? You're holding back rather than pouring out. You're dressing up rather than expressing. Read the Psalms. Read how raw and and emotional David is. That's not how David acted. A guy named Alexander McLaren writes this. Doubts and pains are better put into plain speech than lying diffused and darkening like poison mist in the heart. A thought, be it good or bad, can be dealt with when it is made articulate. Let me read that again. It's thick. Doubt and pains are better put into plain speech Then lying, diffused, darkening like poison mist in the heart. A thought, be it good or bad, can be dealt with when it is made articulate. So maybe you should think of this part of the lament as like getting out the poison mist out of your heart. Lest it settle and and start to to decay and kill inside of there. Get this out. Make it articulate because once it's made articulate, it can be dealt with. If you keep it inside your heart, if you say, oh God, I can't say that. Then you're not going to be able to deal with it. It's going to stay there. So David, we look at him as the example. He presents his heart to God. Man, the black parts, the infected parts, the wounded parts, the callous parts. He just takes it before the throne and he gives it to God. So turn to God. Present your heart to God unfiltered. Those are the first two elements of a lament. Now, if you stop here, uh, all you've done is turn God into your high school friend who you called up to vent to. I just want to point this out. If you stop right here at this point in the lament, there are two more elements that are necessary. Don't stop here. Don't reduce God down to your girlfriend. Or you're just getting some stuff off your chest while you do your nails. Don't do that. God's more than that. Let's give him more. So, yes, you cry in the presence of God. Yes, you uh, present your heart to God unfiltered. But then the third element that makes God God is you ask boldly. You ask boldly. You ask God for help with everything you just expressed. Boldly. It's not a, hey God, so like I know you're busy, like it's 2020, so you got a lot on your plate right now. So if you have time, could you maybe possibly get to my thing? No. Timid prayers are insulting to God. They have built into them an assumption of a lack of power. No, you just pray bold what you're... You you pray the request that you're feeling. Lord, I'm hurting. Help me. Solve this problem. Remove this obstacle. Conquer my enemies. Give me my lack. Heal my wound. You boldly ask for the thing. A big, heartfelt prayer honors God. It honors God. Look at what David says in the middle of the psalm. Turn to me and answer me, oh my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying we defeat them. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. He's asking for big things clearly, boldly. And I, I want to point out, I think sometimes Christians don't ask, but the, I think that's a scary place to go. I think not asking God for things actually is an indicator sometimes that you've lost hope that'll change them. And, and here's how I, here's why I think that. Take a marriage as an example. When I'm doing marriage counseling, I'll take a couple who's fighting over a couple who's silent. The wife who's nagging her husband to pursue her and love her is in a better place than the wife who doesn't even bother because she doesn't believe in it. it'll change anything anyways. The, the husband who's whining because the life in the bedroom isn't what he quite was hoping for is in a better place than the husband who says, screw it, I'm not going to say anything because it doesn't matter anyway, she's not going to change. The vocal, vocalizing the request is, is in a better place than silence because silence signals despair. Silence signals despair. See, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Despair is. Doubt is a part of the process of faith. That means you're still engaged, you're still wrestling, you're still going in the direction. Despair has given up. So, so I want to include, man, you yes, cry in the presence of God. Yes, present your heart to God unfiltered, but man, ask him. ask him, stay engaged. Believe that he can still move in this world. Don't stop asking. Asking God big, bold prayers is a rebellion against your doubt. It's a rebellion against the very evil you just poured out before him. Ask, ask, ask. It's a huge part of the lament. So turn to God. Present your heart to God. Unfilter. Ask God. And then the last element of a lament is choose to trust choose to trust. We are choosing trust over fear and doubt. Look how David ends this psalm five and six, but I will trust in your unfailing life. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. He's choosing trust. I will rejoice. I will sing to the Lord. David feels one way and he's choosing to act and believe another way. I mean, five seconds ago, he was just asking God where he is. And then here he's saying he trusts him. And for me, this part of the lament, so once I've you know, shed my tears in God's presence and tried to present my heart unfiltered to him and asked him to do something about it, this is the part where I kind of have to preach to myself. I have to rehearse truth that I know in my mind. I'm letting my head talk to my heart here. And that's a hard thing to do as well. Because my heart is feeling one thing. I'm having all kinds of feelings, but my head knows some other things. So sometimes I have to tell myself, hey, God is good. God is good. God is good. God is good. I know God is good. He is not cruel. He does not like compassion. Even though my situation may feel like that, he is good. I have to preach that to myself. God loves me. He died on the cross for my sins as the biggest example of his love for me. I know, I know, I know that he loves me. Even though all this pain I'm feeling, all this stuff is not going the way I think it should. I know he loves me. God is in control. I have to tell myself God is in control. The sparrow does not fall to, to the ground without him knowing. God is in control. God is in control. God is in control. Even though I feel out of control, God is in control. I have to preach to myself what I know. Choose to trust. So, so what happens is I have to start to put together all the stuff I know with all the stuff I feel. And, and this right here, as you start to put these two pieces together, this is where God moves, right? And there's a tension in that. Lament kind of lives in the tension of living in a broken, sinful world and trusting a good and sovereign God. And maybe, maybe that's, if you just boil it down, maybe that's what a lament is. A lament is taking what you know and taking what you feel and going to God and saying, God, I, I don't know how to put this, this puzzle together. It doesn't, it doesn't work. You have to help me put these two things together. Maybe that's all a lament is. Putting what you know together with what you feel and, and making it work. This is why the Christian response to pain and disappointment in this life is utterly unique. We aren't stuffing our feelings like religion says to. We're not bowing to our feelings like culture says to. We are expressing our feelings to a God in the deepest, most passionate way we can as a pathway to trusting him on a more and deeper level. I actually believe that that is the most human way to live, by the way. David expressed how he felt and chose to believe what he knew, heart, head and heart working together like, like pedals on a bike. You need both of them. You're not fully human if you're denying your feelings or bowing to your feelings. That's, neither one of those is fully human. The fully human person takes what they know and what they feel and they live in that. And I believe that's what a lament is designed to do. To weld those two things together because life tries to rip it apart constantly, doesn't it? That what you know and what you feel, life is always pulling on those two things. And the goal of lament is to put them back together. So I know some of you, uh, you're cold-blooded, you're, you're reptilian. You stuff your feelings. That's your strategy. Some of you are like blades of grass in a hurricane, when it comes to your feelings. You bow to the slightest provocation, right? Neither one of those is right. Lament is the pathway to being able to live in the tension of what you know and how you feel. So, so if you take all four of these elements, they're so important. So by turning to God, you're believing that he's close enough to hear you. By presenting your heart to God, you're believing that he's big enough to handle your raw emotions. He's the only one who's big enough for that, by the way. By asking God for stuff, you're believing that he's strong enough to do something about your situation. And that by choosing to trust, you're believing that he is wise enough to do what's best for you, even if you might disagree with it. All four of those are necessary. So I feel like we need to revive the lost art of lament. I think we are terrible at this in our culture. And I would say we need it now more than ever. This year, 2020, is piled on the pain. Is piled on the pain. It's funny because a couple months ago, um, <laughs> we were attempting to plan ahead. It's so, so fun planning ahead in this year. Um, you know, Maybe this, maybe that, maybe this, maybe that. We'll just throw some paint on the wall and hope it sticks. Um, it's been an exercise in frustration most of the time. So we were attempting to put together a calendar of like, what our worship experiences were going to look like as we got closer to gathering together like, in person. And I had this idea, and I told Jonathan about it. I'm like, hey, we need to like, do like, a funeral for the first half of this year. That's what we need to do. We need to do a funeral. Um, now, Now you know, and it is a really good idea. I was really proud of it. And then now as I'm standing here, I'm thinking maybe this is premature. Like maybe the year isn't all the way dead yet. This year is only mostly dead. Maybe we shouldn't have a funeral yet. Maybe I should have saved this for like January. I don't know. Um, But the idea that I had was was that we needed to mourn and lament our losses for the first half of this year. That maybe, like, actually, emotionally, we needed to process the first half of this year as if it was a death. It would be healthy and productive for us to grieve what wasn't, what should have been, pains, hurts, and disappointments. So, a funeral for the beginning of 2020. Maybe we'll do another funeral for the second half of 2020, hopefully not. But part of a funeral is a eulogy, right? So in a eulogy, um, it's a remembrance speech that's like paying tribute to someone who died, uh, essentially. Um, and what I want to do is kind of like, instead of that, like an anti-eulogy kind of a thing. Um, I'd rather, rather than talk good things about 2020, because I, I could really have to pretend. Um, let's let's talk about all the things that, that 2020 hasn't done. Let's Let's lament a little bit about what 2020... Like, should have been. So I'm going to be transparent and kind of share my, my personal anti-eulogy for 2020, if you will. Um, so dear, it starts this way. I'm just going to read it. Dear 2020, you suck. Um, 2020, you have stolen from me. You've crushed my expectations and trampled on my dreams for this year. Now, before I get going, one bright spot I must acknowledge. I had a beautiful baby girl, and she is amazing. I don't believe in perfect human beings, but right now she's as close as it gets, and I'll fight you if you think otherwise. But she is like a flower in a barren desert. She is like a single warm ray of sunshine shining through dark and horrible clouds all around. She's it. I had so many dreams. I had so many hopes. I had such high expectations for what this year would bring. 2020, you stole from me. I mean, the egg drop was supposed to be this epic thing, man. Bigger, better, reach more people, invite them to church, watch God move on Easter. (laughs) Not only did we not have an egg drop, we didn't even have Easter, not in person. Blue Tip, man, was supposed to be like so cool. Um, We were going to come in second place to the band just like we always do because the voting's rigged, but it was going to be amazing. Kids Land was going to be over the top. And again, we're just going to be out in the community rubbing elbows with people and inviting people to church who otherwise would not be invited. Balloons over wads were supposed to happen in five days. And the city actually invited us to be a part of it. They like were going to pay for us to be there. It was like a Nehemiah thing. Again, just being out in the community, making it better, being light in dark places. A huge part of our heart as a church is just go be where people are. That's like what we're built to do is go be where people are. In 2020, you stole that. We were supposed to have these after parties. Remember that we had one. I don't know if it feels like a lifetime ago, but we had one after party, one glorious, happy after party. Where we ate some awesome food and we just intentionally slowed down as a church and connected with each other. This is our year. Church was going to pop. People were going to come to faith. We were going to grow more tight together. The gates of hell were going to shake, man. Sword drawn charge. But (laughs) literally, like, as we're getting ready, fireball (laughs) comes over the gate in the form of a weird-looking virus and just destroys it all. And don't sit here and tell me, yeah, but Adam, God's... Shh, I'm lamenting. Don't give me the silver lining. I'm looking at the cloud right now. Let me look at the cloud for a minute. 2020, you suck. Stole a lot of stuff. And I know you're sitting here thinking, man, all yours is like church stuff. Yes, I know, I'm obsessed. But... There's more things, there's little things, right? Conversations that weren't had, relationships that were going put on pause, moments missed. Like I don't have a picture of my, my parents or any close family holding my baby in the hospital because they weren't allowed there. I still don't think we celebrated my son's eighth birthday, ninth, ninth birthday. See, I don't even know what birthday we're on. That's how messed up this is. My daughter's going into fifth grade next year, but there was no ceremony, no celebration. As far as I'm concerned, she's still in elementary school. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all this stuff and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it at the feet of Jesus. I'm going to take.